Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, Episode Zero. What is Western Esotericism, anyway? In 1964, a book appeared which, for a lot of people, changed everything. Impeccably researched and beautifully written, it told a story of a hitherto unsuspected intellectual history of the Renaissance. There had been, we discovered, a kind of learned counterculture in Western Europe standing in opposition to the mainstream Christian church. While by no means anti-Christian, this current of thought sought wisdom not only in the approved readings of scripture put forward by the church, but in ancient and dangerously pagan writings attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, the legendary Egyptian sage, in the writings of Plato and Plotinus, and even in the Kabbalah of the Jews. These thinkers were also concerned with natural magic, the theoretical science of exploiting the unseen connections between things in the cosmos to achieve incredible results. This was Renaissance Hermetism, or Hermeticism, a system of thought developed by such luminaries as Marsilio Ficino, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, and Giordano Bruno, and elsewhere in Europe by John Dee, Johannes Kepler, Johannes Reuchlin, Agrippa, and others. This hermetic tradition constituted a kind of intellectual transnational underground of magus scholars, united by their esoteric understandings of Christianity, their belief in a chain of perennial wisdom, their eclectic use of many diverse traditions in their search for esoteric truths, and their interest, both theoretical and practical, in magic. It was their quest to unveil the secrets of nature and nature's god, which led in time to the rise of empirical science, and eventually to the Enlightenment, which would in turn cast off and reject its hermetic forebear as the superstition and folly of a backward age. Cue the modern world. The book was Giordano Bruno in the Hermetic Tradition by Francis A. Yates, later Dame Francis Yates, and it completely blew my mind when I was a kid. This was the stuff. There was a whole secret history of the modern world here, big stuff like the rise of empirical science, Europe's shaking off the shackles of Catholic hegemony, and man's quest for the truth. But it involved all the sorts of things which they never mentioned in history class at school. Esoteric Platonist ideas, ancient magical texts, alchemy, astrology, Kabbalah, and even magic. And it wasn't fiction, but history. I was hooked. There was only one problem. It wasn't true. According to the Yates paradigm, as it's become known, Hermeticism was a key factor in the intellectual development of European thought out from the Middle Ages and into what would eventually become the new science of the 17th century. This was the history of ideas and the history of science rolled into one, with an amazing cast of characters and some weird and compelling belief systems. There was a lot to like in the Yeats paradigm. It had narrative power, it was expounded in beautifully written books which have actually remained in print to this day which is no mean feat for historical books centered on abstruse and largely forgotten byways of the history of ideas. But unfortunately, the Renaissance Hermetist counterculture discovered and described by Yeats never really existed, or at least it never existed in just the way she described it. It's not that Yeats invented an entire intellectual current from whole cloth. To the contrary, these thinkers really did live and write, they really did scan the works of the legendary Hermes and Plato in quest of knowledge to support their new interpretations of Christianity and of philosophy, and they really did represent distinct currents of thought from mainstream Christianity. They just weren't the discrete, essentialized tradition which Yeats oversimplistically painted a picture of. In fact, the thinkers described by Yeats under the rubric of Hermetic philosophy included quite a diverse cast of characters. Some, 
like Marsilio Ficino and Pico, were at the cutting edge of the Renaissance rediscovery of Platonic and other classical texts, which had been lost for centuries in the Latin-speaking West. They were Renaissance thinkers par excellence. Others like John Dee and Cornelius Agrippa were very much continuing the line of natural philosophy developed in the Latin West through the Middle Ages. They were, in a sense, medieval thinkers living in the Renaissance, and their theories existed within an Averroist Aristotelian tradition with a long history in the university culture of the late Middle Ages. They had no access to the Corpus Hermeticum. They knew of Hermes through Latin traditions coming originally from Arabic sources, a completely different stream of Hermetic transmission. And later, there arose in the Reformation period a number of other esoteric currents, often referred to with some sloppiness as Rosicrucian, named after the famous Rosicrucian manifestos, which Yeats also folds in the Hermetic tradition. The writers of the manifestos and the many works which they inspired were interested in alchemy, astrology, magic, Christianized forms of Kabbalah, and so on and so forth, but their concerns and worldviews were miles apart from those of the Renaissance Hermetists, who had lived, after all, in a period when the hegemony of the Catholic Church was starting to show some cracks, but it was still fundamentally unquestioned. Do all these movements really fit comfortably under the label of the Hermetic tradition? Scholarship has moved on a long way since Dame Frances penned her wonderful stories, and the answer is no. And yet, scholars continue to study the currents mentioned above, and many more, as links in a long intellectual development across Western Europe, which did have enormous influence on the course of European history of ideas, while remaining on the fringes of mainstream discourse. These movements and ideas, collectively, are referred to under the rubric of Western esotericism. So if there wasn't a secret history of hermitism driving Europe out of the Middle Ages and into the arms of empirical science, to oversimplify the Yeats thesis to the point of parody, who were these esotericists and what were they actually doing? That is the question that this podcast will aim to answer. It will be a very detailed answer. Inspired by the current flowering of long-form historical podcasts, it will attempt to trace the genealogy of a connected group of discourses and ideas which have woven themselves into the fabric of European culture, sometimes underground in secret societies and abstruse texts, and sometimes emerging into the light of day to claim respectability and authority on the same playing field as the dominant discourses of their time. It will be a history of ideas featuring the thought of some of the greatest philosophical and scientific minds of history, alongside and in dialogue with the fevered imaginings of highly strung and perhaps slightly unhinged speculative thinkers, which makes for a wonderful mix, as you can imagine. This history is a long one, and the podcast format allows us to go right back to the beginning, so the show will investigate the very roots of important concepts essential to Western esoteric thought. Our historical journey will be roughly chronological, starting at the beginnings of civilization in the Near East and moving forward in time. In other words, if you're here because you want the real dirt on Marsilio Ficino or Agrippa or Aleister Crowley, you'll have to wait a while. But don't worry. When we do get to those thinkers, and we will, the answers you get to your questions about them will be more thorough than you could get practically anywhere else, and richer and more interesting than you expected. No single person could do justice to such a huge project, which is why the show will rely, whenever possible, on interviews and dialogue with leading scholars and specialists. We've already spoken of one such scholar, Dame Frances Yates, and as you can imagine, the field of study, which she was partly responsible for putting on the map, has not stood still since her death in 1981. There are some really interesting scholars working on some really interesting stuff out there, and we hope to introduce you to them and to their work in the course of this podcast. Not all scholars working on Western esotericism see themselves as such. They might be historians of science studying alchemy, astrology, pre-modern medicine, or natural magic. 
they might be historians of religion concentrating on particular movements which are constituent ingredients in the esoteric mix, such as Gnosticism, the Hermetica, or Kabbalah. They might be philosophers working on the thought of Plato, Plotinus, Iamblichus, or even Hegel, Bergson, or Heidegger. They might be social historians concerned with the transmission of knowledge across borders and cultures, or with the interplays of power which arise when the esoteric dichotomy of inner and outer groups materializes. They might even be theologians, and just possibly, they might be adherents of a living tradition which is in some way a continuation of Western esotericism. In the course of this podcast, we will encounter all these and more, but there is also a small but growing academic field devoted to the study of Western esotericism as a subject in itself. And that's where my work is coming from, more or less, and that forms our first port of call for academic experts on aspects of these traditions. So what is Western esotericism? We don't seem to be getting any closer to a definition. Now, we definitely don't want to get bogged down in methodological considerations at this stage in the game, but we do need something to go on. And sometimes the best thing to do is take a de facto starting point and go from there. So let's look at the website of the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam, the only academic institution currently devoted solely to the study of Western esotericism. You can find their website at www.amsterdamhermetica.nl, and if you visit it, you'll see the following outline of what they mean by Western esotericism. Quote, the term Western esotericism covers a wide spectrum of neglected currents in Western cultural history. As an umbrella term that intends to highlight connections and developments over a long period, from antiquity to the present day, esotericism includes phenomena as varied as Gnosticism, Hermetism, and Neoplatonic theurgy, astrology, alchemy, and natural magic, Christian Kabbalah, Rosicrucianism, Christian theosophy, and Illuminism, the currents of modern occultism, spiritualism, traditionalism, and the New Age movement, paganism, ritual magical groups, and a host of contemporary alternative spiritualities and forms of popular occulture. In short, esotericism cuts through the established boundaries of religion, science, art, and philosophy. As an academic field of study, Western esotericism is therefore a highly interdisciplinary enterprise. End of quote. Obviously, that's a lot of territory to cover, and we've left behind Yeats's very simple picture of a more or less unified hermetic tradition. We're looking here at a very long development of mutually dependent and interlocking, but also very different, movements, each with its own particularities. Now, this podcast will deal with methodological problems of terminology a lot, probably more than anyone really wants, and it would be counterproductive to dive headlong into the mire of definitions and counter-definitions familiar to academics studying cultures and religions. Indeed, culture and religion themselves are both very slippery concepts, if you stop and think about it, but they're both concepts that are completely essential if you want to understand what makes human beings tick. Taking the Amsterdam definition as a starting point without applying much methodological questioning to it, we can go on to say a few things to get the ball rolling. First of all, if you're like me and you find pretty much everything on this list interesting, and some of it downright fascinating, stick with the podcast because we're going to explore these currents of thought in a way that's never been done outside of the formal academic world. Even if you think you know a thing or two about the history of Western esotericism, and I don't doubt you for a minute, I'm sure you do, but you'll probably find that you don't know the half of it and that the truth is more important and weirder than you thought. I know this because I'm an academic pretty much devoted to studying this stuff, and I'm constantly having my mind blown and having to revise my whole worldview of history and genealogy of ideas. So we're in the same boat. Secondly, it's worth pointing out here that the interdisciplinary nature of the study is our problem, 
not the esotericists' problem. They didn't divide the world of thought up the way we moderns do, and for them, what they were doing was a pursuit for truth and transformation, not a cross-disciplinary intellectual pursuit. But, hell yes, we are going to be covering fascinating and almost unknown chapters in the history of science. We will be re-examining popular ideas about the history of religions and what they've meant and been in the past. We will be taking philosophy out of the ivory tower and presenting it as it's been lived by many of its greatest practitioners, as a way of life embracing visions, oracles, and even magic. We will be following the latest scholarship and completely rewriting the history of cultural transmission in Europe and the Mediterranean region, and in the process shaking up preconceptions about the West and what it means to be a Westerner. And along the way, we'll be discussing some of the strangest and coolest thinkers who ever thought, and some of the weirdest and coolest writings ever written. Now, as I've said, I don't want to get too involved in discussions about definitions and the nitty-gritty of historical analysis yet, but there is one question of method I would like to address in this introductory episode. Why is this podcast called The Secret History of Western Esotericism? It can't be much of a secret if you're doing a podcast about it. Or can it? That is a damn fine question. But before I answer it, let's do a simple exercise together. I'm sure that my audience includes some well-read and thoughtful folks, and probably some who are a sight better read than I am. So let's do a quiz. It'll be a really simple quiz with a simple goal. No, not to show how clever I am. The goal is to show the sheer range of material which we'll be covering in our survey of Western esotericism, and how little of it is widely known. So even if you know the answers to some of these questions, reflect on how few people in the general public do know these answers, and how important the subject matter is. Ready? Here we go. Grab a pen. I'll give the answers to the quiz after I've given the answer to the question about secret history. Number one. Which Greek philosopher wrote his theories in the form of an epic poem narrating a visionary journey to the other world guided by an initiating goddess? Number two. Which Greek philosopher often called the father of Western rationalism, said that the best things come to mankind through divinely inspired madness. Number three, it's well known that the later Roman Empire officially converted to Christianity and that the European Middle Ages were dominated by Christianity. About when did the final pagans in Europe convert to Christianity? Number four, speaking of Christianity, what was the mysterious connection between the Knights Templar and the notorious Cathar heretics of southern France. Number five, which Renaissance alchemist, astrologer, visionary, and esoteric religious thinker pioneered modern medical techniques, having emphasized the importance of chemistry in medical treatment? Number six, Sir Isaac Newton, a well-known scientist, wrote quite a lot. But one subject dominates his output, on which he wrote about a million words. What is this subject? Great. Six questions. Have you written down your answers? Then let's continue. This podcast is entitled The Secret History of Western Esotericism for three main reasons. The first one has hopefully been brought out by the little quiz we've just done. History can become secret by being plastered over by oversimplified or just plain wrong historical narratives. As individuals and as cultures, we human beings tell ourselves stories about the past. We have national stories that we learn about in school. All Americans who remember the story about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, raise your hands. And we have broader cultural stories that we tell ourselves that we sort of absorb from societies in which we live by a process of osmosis. To take a powerful example, let's look at how the last few hundred years have been centuries of progress, 
driven by innovation in Europe and North America. But these stories often come a cropper when they encounter historical research. The thing about George Washington, we have no evidence whatsoever for that. European progress, not wrong exactly, but it needs nuancing. How many people are aware that crucial advances in sciences like astronomy, think Galileo and Copernicus, optics, think Newton, navigation, think Columbus, and geometry, think John Dee, to give a good esoteric name, were developed by Westerners partly or entirely reliant on medieval Islamic scientists. Well, they were. Of course, there has undeniably been technical progress in Europe in the last few hundred years, but it's not been some autochthonous development springing from the sheer genius of Europeans, as some would like to think. It has been, as we would expect in our more thoughtful moments, a collaborative effort, a cross-cultural effort. We might compare the way Islamic culture had much earlier taken Greco-Roman science on board, run with it, and made enormous advances in many fields. Civilizations rise and fall, but the torch of knowledge and science is passed on. The point here is that there's a lot of this kind of secret history out there, that is, history which is completely uncontroversial among academic specialists, but also almost unknown to the public at large. The long and involved history of Western esotericism contains many choice examples of this sort of secret history, and we aim to remove the veil of secrecy and make them available to anyone who wants to listen. We all learn a lot of useful stuff in school, but we learn a lot of nonsense as well. So let's hope that if you keep listening, you'll have many tidy ideas about the history of Western culture blown off their hinges. A second sense in which this history is secret refers to a fascinating dynamic within esotericism itself. We get from the name that esotericism involves something to do, not with secrecy exactly, but with exclusion and inclusion. By positing an esoteric wisdom, we imply that there's an in-crowd who know and an out-crowd who are in the dark. Obviously, secret societies like the Freemasons or the mysterious Brotherhood of the Rose Cross are shining examples of this kind of inclusion and exclusion dialectic. But it goes much deeper than this. We very often find in all sorts of different esoteric materials a kind of rhetorical secrecy, a public act of secrecy which neither implies genuine secrecy nor genuine exclusion. What do we make, for example, of the ancient Gnostic texts known as Apocrypha? Apocryphon is a Greek word meaning that which is hidden away or simply secret. But these texts, we have every reason to believe, were circulated quite freely. So whom were they secret from? We have many examples of magical texts from all ages which are saturated with statements that the rituals in question are secret. Often some texts were and are available at open marketplaces, or in my day, at your local occult bookshop. In these days, the serious seeker after recondite hidden mysteries can try Amazon. There's nothing secret about them. Anyone who can read can access these texts. What are we supposed to make of an Arabic alchemical manuscript written in cipher, but with the key to the cipher actually written in the work itself? How does putting something in code square with explaining how the code works at the same time? How are we to interpret Madame Blavatsky's occult classic, The Secret Doctrine, the foundational text of the 19th century Theosophical Society? Admittedly, it's not a page-turner, but still, Anyone with enough tenacity or sheer cussedness can wade through its hundreds and hundreds of pages and discover whatever secrets it might contain. The fact is, there's a very pervasive type of rhetorical nod to secrecy and the inclusion-exclusion dialectic, which crops up in all sorts of different ways in the writings of esotericists, but it seemingly has nothing to do with keeping secrets. 
Now, this is a very fascinating phenomenon, and I've devoted a lot of time to it, so there'll be a lot about this sort of rhetorical secrecy in the course of the podcast. But for the moment, let's just leave things here by saying that this podcast is secret knowledge in exactly the same way that Madame Blavatsky's secret doctrine is secret knowledge, and we hope our audience enjoy entering the inner circle of initiates. But feel free to publicize this podcast on Facebook. It will still be secret. We're dealing with, in the words of Ezra Pound, Quote, the mysteries self-defended, the mysteries that cannot be revealed. Fools can only profane them. The dull can neither penetrate the secretum nor divulge it to others. End of quote. The third and most important reason that this podcast is called The Secret History of Western Esotericism is that it sounds cool. Now that we've plumbed the arcane secrets of the show's title, let's turn to the answers of our quiz. Number one. Which philosopher wrote up his results in the form of a visionary journey guided by an initiating goddess? Parmenides, of course, one of the most important philosophers in history, known as the father of metaphysics, and a major influence on Plato. Hundreds of studies have been written on the thought of Parmenides, but it's a shocking fact that with few exceptions, the fact that his entire work is described as a visionary initiatory journey is completely ignored. If it's mentioned at all, it's just a poetic ornamentation for his serious philosophical work. Thus, it is secret history. Number two, which even more important philosopher wrote that all the best things come to mankind through mania, or divine frenzy? Plato, of course, speaking through the mouth of Socrates, his teacher. Now, Socrates was known for the intense meditative trances he would fall into, where he'd become utterly ignorant of what was going on in the phenomenal world around him. Is that philosophy? Get ready to encounter a Socrates and Plato you definitely did not learn about in your introductory philosophy course. This is the secret history of philosophy. Number three. When did Europe finally convert to Christianity? Hmm. Very, very late, if at all. The Norse, in many places, didn't convert until around 1000 CE. Swedish Lutherans take note. But the Baltic region may get the prize. The Lithuanians didn't even begin to convert into Christianity until the 14th century, and the conversion took a good few hundred years before it really got underway, so we're talking about the modern period, really. There were many other pockets of surviving paganism well into the Christian era, and even in the Roman lands proper, as we shall see, the traditional Mediterranean religions held on for centuries into the Christian era, even under conditions of persecution. But of course, Christianity itself contains elements drawn directly or indirectly from paganism. The word Easter comes from the name of an Anglo-Saxon pagan goddess, for Christ's sake. See what I did there? So if you answered never, you definitely get a point here. The secret history of paganism or heathenism, or traditional religions of Europe, you can choose your terminology of choice, alongside and within European monotheism, will be a recurring theme of this podcast. Number four. What was the secret connection between the Knights Templar and the Cathars? Trick question. There wasn't one. But... Boy, oh boy, have they had a fertile relationship in the pseudo-history of esotericism in the 20th century. The secret history of secret history will be a big part of this podcast. That is, looking not only at genuine historical movements, but at the ideas which develop around these movements, often completely absurd or fanciful ideas, but then themselves productive of new movements. Or, as in the case of the Templars and the Cathars, of cheesy, best-selling conspiracy fiction. The second life lived by certain potent ideas in the historical imagination is one of the most fascinating aspects of the study of esotericism, and we often end up with a situation where the pseudo-history is built on a foundation of equally fascinating real secret history, 
So the actual histories of the Templars and Cathars is already amazing stuff, believe me. So there's no need to bring the Holy Grail or whatever in to spice things up. But once you've brought in the Holy Grail, you become part of the story of secret history. Number five. What alchemist and esotericist paved the way for the modern pharmaceutical industry? Paracelsus, of course. Along with having wandered around Europe as a prognosticator, magus, alchemist, and all-around difficult character, Paracelsus found time to invent the principle that diseases could be treated by drugs which had no magical connection to the disease they were treating. They just worked. And that they could be compounded in a laboratory. In other words, Paracelsus invented pharmaceuticals. Well, actually, the Arabs were centuries ahead of him, but for a European, he was ahead of the curve. So when you go to the doctor next time, spare a thought for the 16th century's most famous alchemist and his role in the secret history of medicine. Number six. What subject did Newton devote so much of his effort to? Alchemy, of course. Newton also spent a lot of time trying to compute the exact date of the apocalypse based on esoteric reading of Christian scriptures. They tend to skip that part in science class when they teach us about gravity. The secret history of experimental science will be a major theme explored in this podcast. That's all for this introductory episode, and I hope you will join us for the long haul. It will be a very interesting ride. In the next episode, we're going to give the broadest possible historic overview to our subject. So join us next time for episode one, where we will begin the impossible task of surveying the entire history of Western esotericism from its beginning in late antiquity down to the modern day in just two podcast episodes. Until then, stay esoteric.